What a great segue into our message for this morning. This whole idea of the, the safety and the security and um, just the, the comfort of being in the presence of God, and yet uh, we're not called to stay there. We're called as followers of Jesus to, to step out in faith, to step out in risk, in vulnerability, even in danger for this calling that we've been given. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. May your spirit speak to each one of us individually. May you have a word and a message for us today about our own lives, about where we're at, about what it means to be fully human. What it means to step out of safety and into risk. Amen. Well, we've been using uh, this, this verse from Psalm 8 as kind of our theme verse for this series so far. And it, it says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? We talked about how that's uh, a sort of reflection by the psalmist David on the creation story. All of this dominion, all of this creative power that our creator God has, he has bestowed upon us. The human creatures. And so why? What does that mean? What, what does that look like in our day-to-day -day lives? And uh, if you've been with us for the two weeks so far this series, you know that it hasn't exactly been an easy series to get through. So congrats. You're still here. Well done. It's been very theologically challenging. It hasn't been kind of light and fluffy. There's been hard things that we've been having to deal with. Really complex, intense issues that we're trying to wrestle through to create some sort of foundation for what it means to be a human. And so well done for making it this far. It, it doesn't, uh, doesn't hurt that the preacher has been so funny and engaging and is easy on the eyes. Um, my wife is teaching Kids Park this morning, so I don't even get an amen from her. Might be slightly optimistic to think that I would get an amen from my wife on that. Uh, we got lots to get through this morning, so I'm going to jump right in and uh, we're going to get going. So here's your, here's your two-minute recap. Let's see if I can keep it to two minutes, all right? The first week we talked about uh, what is the human person? What are we doing here? Uh, how do we understand ourselves? And we've used these two voices throughout the series. We've used these cultural voices of what we've called the materialist and the spiritualist alongside the Christian voice, all right? And so we're going to revisit that again today, later in the message. But what we decided was that uh, who and what and where and when and why, these actually weren't the best questions to ask when we start talking about what is a human being. Because the Christian message says that we need to start with whose, or to whom do we belong. You see, that's the fundamental thing about the human person in the Christian gospel, that we belong to a personal creator God. We are his creatures. And so we started there. And then in week two, 
we, we went through a bunch of stuff, but we ended up saying, what was the big idea? The big idea at the end was that this Jesus, this one who came to earth being fully God, is now fully man as well. And when he was paraded before Pilate, stripped, naked, crown of thorns on his head, bruised and beaten, mocked, and Pilate declared, behold, the man, he spoke the most truthful thing that he could have said. That uh, the most humiliating part of this man's life, he was the human. What it means to be truly human. And so Jesus is our Redeemer, but he is also our example. He is uh, the, the one who stands at the end of the maze. Remember that analogy that we used? That we can trace our way back to see what true humanity looks like. We have the answer key, the cheat at the end. We don't have to stumble our way through the maze. We can look to the end. The one who stands there is Jesus, crucified and risen. And as I was reflecting on our first two weeks together, I thought this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is a kind of great sum up of these two. It's verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that Though he was rich, and here he's talking about his full divinity. He is God. Yet for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. He put on humanity. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. And again, I love that becoming, right? This isn't some sort of static reality. We aren't just existing here, but we are growing and maturing and fulfilling that call to become human. So where to from here, right? We've got these two kind of pillars to build a foundation on of what it means to become human. What, what, what question can we ask next? I think the proper question to ask next is, what exactly does it mean then for this human person to flourish, to thrive. What does that look like in the human story? And so here's our, here's our counter voices. The materialist in our culture. Remember, we just are. We, we came into being, we'll go out of being at some point. We don't know why or when or how. We just exist. And we're nothing more than the material that we're made of, right? And so what does human flourishing look like in that situation? Well, it's actually pretty clear. It's survival of the fittest, right? I mean, ultimately, that's all it can come down to. I mean, maybe you have sort of the powerful, the ones that are strong, the fittest ones who have some sort of legacy with their progeny and their children carry on their name or some project, but we all know that that fades too. And so flourishing means... Survival of the fittest. Well, what about for the spiritualist voice? We talked about how many different spiritualist voices there are in our culture. But we, we felt like these terms like enlightenment or transcendence or detachment, self-consciousness, mindfulness, all of these sort of ideas that are really quite prevalent in our culture today uh, have the same sort of end goal, have the same idea of what human flourishing might be in a spiritualist uh, mindset. And it's this escape, right? We used the music stands last week and we took the last one away. 
talking about how, how it transcends or it escapes or it sh sheds its humanity at the end. And it's pure spirit. That's all it is. And how, uh, you know, with the aches and pains of our world and the heartache of our world, how that's a really tempting thing for us to look at. And how it's a little bit Christian even. But ultimately, our call as Christians is not to detach, to not transcend, but actually to grow into the image, the icon of the true human, Jesus. So the difference you see in the, in the spiritual's vision is, is how individualistic it is. It's a, this idea of my truth to be able to escape, to transcend, to be enlightened out of the problems and the chaos of this world. And so, sort of the ethic goes, whatever floats your boat, man. Right? As long as you don't hurt anyone else, whatever works for you, great. Go do it. No sort of ultimacy underneath it. It's also sort of highly ambiguous. It's not just individualistic, but what shape does this take? What's the catchword, right? Love. It's great. A very, very Christian, Christian thing, thing, by the way. Love. But what does love look like? There's no model, there's no mold for, for us to say, that's what love looks like, right? There is no behold the man to say, that's the imprint that we're after. So what is the Christian response to these two voices when we ask the question, what does it mean for the human person to flourish? Let me suggest that the highest answer in Scripture comes to us in Philippians chapter 2. It's a long passage, so bear with me on it, but I'll read it through for you. Therefore, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What mindset is that? who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's Back up, right to the start of the passage. Verse 1, chapter 2. Here's a little uh, free tidbit for you. Whenever you're reading Scripture, there's this little rule that we have that's really helpful. Whenever you see a therefore, it's really important. Why is it important? Well, it's saying that, that what I'm going to say after this has everything to do with what I'm saying before this. And so if, if you believe and if you understand and if you want to live what's after this, you have to understand what comes before it. And so we have this little rule. It's a little rhyme. It's kind of cute. It says, when you see a therefore, make sure you ask what it's there for. Right? Isn't that adorable? So what is it there for? Right? That's how Paul starts. Therefore. 
right at the beginning, right? So let's back up. I want to take you to chapter 1, right at the end, verse 29, where he says this. For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. I always thought that being granted something was a good thing. Being granted something sounds like a, a gift that I, I get. Gee, thanks, Jesus. Not only get to believe in you, but oh, I get to suffer for you. Awesome. Thanks. That's what Paul's telling us here. And in some strange way, it's part of what it means to be fully human. To suffer and to struggle in the same way that the human suffers and struggles. And we, we might not like it. In fact, I would suggest that we don't like it. None of us here are saying, oh, goody, I get to suffer. Right? But the Bible tells us that it's not something that we simply endure. It's not something that we get through this suffering, but it binds us to the one who has suffered. That's a strange reality. That our suffering for the sake of Jesus somehow connects us, unites us with the one who has suffered, the, the one who is the human. And so when Paul begins with his therefore, and we ask what it's there for, he's saying that in light of this strange reality that when we suffer for the sake of Jesus, it unites us with the human. That's what he says is only what makes sense, what comes out. What comes after? The first thing that he says in this long section in chapter 2 is that we are not our own. And we know. We, we started here, right? This was week one. This is what we understood to be the fundamental thing about the human person. We are not our own. We belong to God. And he says in, in verse 1, you are united to Christ. Those who are united to Christ. That is that belonging, that intimate connection. But he actually goes further than that. In verses 1 to 3, he talks about how being united to Christ, we are also united with one another. We belong to each other. We don't just belong to our Creator God, but creatures belong to other creatures. We talked about the, the sort of narrative arc of the whole story of Scripture in weeks 1 and 2. And again, remember those music stands that I used to, to try to illustrate that story. We talked about being created good, being created in the image of God, but then falling into that chaos of sin and death, right? We see in, in the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2 this, this union, not just with God as, as they walk with God in the garden, but this union between man and woman. It's perfect marriage. And it's harmonious. And then what do we see in chapter 3? We see this descent, this fall, we call it, into the chaos of sin and death. And what happens when we see this descent? Not, not the sin explicitly, but what happens after the sin? God comes and he says, why are you hiding from me? Did you take of the fruit of the tree? I, I told you, this one tree, don't take of that fruit. And what happens? Adam says, the woman. Right? The woman you gave me. It's like a double, double finger point, right? The woman you gave me. It's not me. 
Then Eve says, the serpent. Right? If we trace the story further, <coughs> excuse me, to their children, to Cain and Abel, we, we know that Cain kills his brother. He takes him to the field and with a jawbone of a donkey, he kills him. And the blood of Abel calls out to God from the earth. And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, where is your brother? Cain says, beats me. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? And that message, that message, am I my brother's keeper? goes all the way through Scripture. And by the way, it doesn't stop at the end of Scripture. It goes all the way through you, and it goes all the way through me. Because I don't want to belong to anyone. I want to be my own man. I don't want that sense of accountability. I, I don't want that sense of binding. I don't want that sense of having to link arms with you. There it is. Right? I was thinking about this idea this week as we watched two championship trophies being handed out. I say that because I know the Stanley Cup. I have no idea what the NBA trophy is called. Larry O'Brien. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. And these wonderful teams, and of course all of Canada was cheering for the Raptors, and most of Canada was cheering for the Blues. Sorry, Bob. And after, right? That's my favorite part. I love watching the games. You guys know I'm a big sports fan. But I, I just get emotional when I'm watching after and these trophies are handed out and they stick these microphones right in these guys' face and what do they do? They do this too, but this time, it's not the blame game. This time, it's, it was him. It was him. Together, we got here. We had to rely on each other. We had to band together. We had to make a choice. Are we going to be accountable to each other or not? It struck me. Why can, can sports teams do this and churches can't? Why are they willing to be their brother's keeper and we're not? I mean, we have the ultimate goal. We have the ultimate trophy that we are striving after. We are running the race, says Paul, and yet we want to run it alone. We are not our own. We belong to each other. Second thing the Scripture tells us, that it's Jesus who models self-giving. I think this is one of the great cultural reversals that the Christian faith has taught us. One of the great sort of paradoxes or tensions in Scripture. Now Paul says, when do we flourish and thrive as a human person? Well, it's in our weakness. And he knows this, right? Because he has this, this thorn in the flesh that he tells us about. We don't know what that means, but he says that he prays and prays and prays for it to be taken away. And the answer he gets from Jesus is this, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's, that's the paradox. That's the upside-down world of the gospel, 
that when we give away what we have, when we hand over our power in exchange for weakness, that's when God is most powerfully at work in us. That image, that image of Christ paraded by Pilate is the image of power. Behold the man. It reminds us that we flourish by giving ourselves away to another, by divesting our power for the sake of the weak and the lowly. Oh, you might say, well, so we should do some good works, right? We should uh, get involved with a charity. We should be a do-gooder. No, that's not what he's saying. See, I think there's actually a, a much more profound reality at work in Philippians 2 the, the word charity in our culture has this sort of economic or we might say transactional character to it. And it works a little bit like this. Um, you have X, right? And you're going to give it away. Maybe X is money. Maybe X is things. Maybe X is power. Maybe even X is love. And that's a great thing. And you're going to give charity so to someone X who doesn't have this, right? And the idea is that by doing this, you'll kind of come closer to being equal. Equality will be raised up. But in this section, in Philippians 2, Paul is calling us to imitate Christ's radical self-giving. That's what he says, have the same mindset as Christ. Not for some sort of closer equality, but because, in fact, we become more human in this way. You see, we belong to each other. We're called to empty ourselves for the other. Not, listen to me now, not for their benefit. Not for their benefit. But because you can only become fully human when you divest yourself, when you give away, when you empty yourself. What might this look like? Well, this series is uh, actually a blatant stealing of a book title of one of my own faith heroes. This is a man by the name of Jean Vanier. Believe it or not, you can call it coincidence, Jean Vanier died a month ago. This series has been planned since January. I find it fascinating how the Spirit of God works and so all these videos and tributes and writings for Vanier have come out and they've been wonderful to read. I want to give you a little bit of background about Vanier's life and I'm going to tell you three stories. Three stories from his life that have shaped his understanding of what it means to become human. And then I'm going to show you a little video interview that he did for Canada's 150th. Jean was born in Switzerland to George and Pauline. Jean was the fourth of five siblings. His father would later go on to become the Governor General of Canada. Many of you will be a lot more familiar with the name George Vanier than you are Jean Vanier. He had a, a remarkable upbringing. I could tell stories all day about it, but these three stories, I think, particularly shaped his understanding of what it means to become human. First story, after World War II, which, uh, by the way, he served in as an underage, I think he was uh, 15 years old in the Navy. He and his mother traveled back to Paris 
he assisted with the recovery, and their specific task was to help in the recovery of those who had uh, been in Nazi concentration camps that came back to Paris. And the suffering and the hopelessness and the hurt and the pain that uh, he saw in these victims of the concentration camps um, made his heart break. And he says the, the faces of those people stuck with him for the rest of his life. He saw the depravity of humanity. He saw the depths of sin that, that some men would try to destroy, utterly destroy the image of God in other men, in every sort of conceivable and even up to that point inconceivable way. It shook him. How could we do this? How could anyone do this? And he determined then as a young man that he would strive for a more Christ-like way to bring about biblical justice in the world. Second story. As a young man, again, while visiting a maximum security prison near Winnipeg, Vanier met uh, several men who had been convicted of murder. It's impossible for me to do justice to um, sort of the emotion that Vanier had when he shared this story. But throughout the conversation, he says, he, he talks about how he heard the voice of God speaking to him about his embarrassment and the unspoken assumptions that somehow he was better than the man he sat across the table from. That somehow his visiting with this man was an act of charity from someone with power to someone without power. And so God's spirit kept prompting him with this question, what makes you any better than this man? What makes you any different than this man? And so he concluded the story by saying that he came to the realization at the end of the conversation that given this man's upbringing and this man's history and his life, that he would be in the exact same position if he were him. And the roles very easily could be reversed. He could be sitting across from him, locked up. And more than that, he said, he came to the realization that both he and this man had gifts to give one another. That there was a mutual giving between them. Last story. Vanier was a brilliant man. He received uh, his PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne in France. He returned to Canada to teach philosophy at the University of Toronto, one block from where I used to live. But in 1964, he decided to leave academics and to do something different with his life. At the prompting of a friend, he returned to France to investigate the institutionalization of thousands of developmentally disabled adults, men, women, children. You see, the, the practice of placing individuals with disabilities in large institutions to be cared for was not only the most common practice of the day in the mid-century, it was actually recommended as the most beneficial to society, if you can believe that. I struggled to find a picture that I could show for what the conditions of these institutions were like. I finally had to show one that was basically stripped of any of the guests that lived there. Abuse was rampant, care was severely lacking, conditions were deplorable. 
Vanier says when he entered that very first institution in France, his heart broke at the treatment. He says that the love of Christ compelled him that he had to do something about it. Here was someone, tenured professor of philosophy at Canada's largest institution, and he walked away. He moved into a home, and they called it L'Arche, which is still the name today. Literally in English, it means the ark, because he said all of God's creatures are welcome. He started the first one in France in 1964, where he lived until he passed away a month ago. By 1969, the first large community was founded here in Canada. These communities are homes where individuals with developmental disabilities live alongside those without these disabilities, and they do life together in everything that that means. They teach each other, he says, what it means to be human. You see, community in a self-giving way is what L'Arche is all about. By the way, before I show this video clip, if you want a window into the Calgary L'Arche community, you can always visit the Meadowlark Community Hall on Mondays between 1 and 3, where they host a, an open coffee house that anyone from the community is welcome to attend. Now, I'm not going to unpack those stories any further than that. I think uh, it speaks volumes to the first two weeks and how we've set up the foundation for what it means to become human. I just want to show you uh, the video interview. What a wonderful uh, video. I want to close this morning by inviting a friend of mine up. Uh, her name is Katie Blissetti. I've known Katie my whole life, and um, I want her to share a little bit about her personal and professional experience uh, wrestling with some of these types of questions. And uh, Katie has a, a bachelor's from Alberta Bible College, an education degree from University of Alberta, and a master's from University of Calgary. But much more important than that for us today is that Katie, uh, Katie is the principal of New Heights School. So she's going to tell us a little bit about New Heights, what makes uh, New Heights a little bit unique. And um, even more important than that is that Katie and her husband Jordan, in, in their family life, have wrestled with these questions and what does it mean to do life together? What does it mean to treat each other as truly human? And so I love uh, that background and that experience, and I, I love Katie's heart. So Katie, come on up. I'll ask you a few questions, and you can share a little bit. Lane did not tell me I'd be following up Vanier, who is clearly the therefore of this morning. So. Well, why don't you begin, Katie, just by telling us a little bit about New Heights. So we have some background. Sure. Um, New Heights School is a school for kids two and a half to 21 years old, all on the autism spectrum. Um, it's a private school here in Calgary. It's a very small school, but it uh, is a school that um, the kids often say feels like home. For staff, too, it feels like home for me as well. So 2 to 21, uh, that's a pretty big range. How, how does that go over in, in a small space? You guys meet in, in Curry Barracks, right? Just off Crow Chop. Yeah, <laughs> prep me for this question. <laughs> uh, yeah, two and a half to 21 is, is a very big span. Uh, we often do, um, what we're trying to do is build a community there, a community where kids feel like they belong, where they feel safe to be themselves, um, where they see their 
own strengths and how they can add to the community and the community can add to them as well. Um, we do lots of whole school activities together where we've got our high school kids working with our preschool kids, um, seeing how we can see the humanity in each other. Cool. What would you say is the typical reaction that you get when you tell people that you're the principal of New Line? Um, if I tell people that I am a principal, I usually get a, oh, tell me a little bit more about how that came, or I visited the principal's office, uh, office quite a bit. If I say I'm a principal of a school for kids who are on the autism spectrum, I get, oh, how angelic of you. You must have a lot of patience, um, that sort of thing. And uh, would you say that's true? I mean, you are kind of an angel. No? I thought we grew up together. <laughs> I didn't know how much you wanted me to tell about her, you know? Um, angelic and full of patience are not two words that most people used to describe me, but um, yeah. So this morning we've talked a little bit about um, how sometimes our culture views charity as sort of giving away to, you know, maybe those less fortunate, and it's just as you said, really, oh, such an angel for doing this charity. But what we've tried to push back on with this passage in Philippians is that actually the gospel calls us um, to, to be fully human, we have to give of ourselves. It's not for their benefit or for their sake, um, it's actually for ours. Tell me a little bit about that sort of transactional model and, and how you see that in your work at New Heights. Sure. Um, it's a big question. It is a big question. Um, often, often we say that autism is um, a disability of trust. It's a um, lack of trust in the world around you and very much a lack of trust in people because people are the most unpredictable. Um, so often what we're doing is trying to, trying to build trust uh, little by little each day. Um, there's a, a student that I met with every day for three years. Um, and part of that was to build some of that trust. And about six months into our meetings, um, I was feeling pretty good about how it was going. He was feeling more comfortable coming to school every day, which was the big thing that we were trying to, trying to break down that barrier of him feeling uncomfortable coming to school. Um, and as he was leaving my office, he turned around, he said, you know what, I kind of leave these things more confused than when I come to them sometimes, which kind of hurt a little bit, but yeah. Um, and uh, what he said was, it would help a lot if you, like I did, he said, I do a lot of the talking in these, it would help a lot if you shared some of what you were thinking about as well. Um, and that was, I guess that's what you call a wake-up call, I guess, um, to seeing that we're, we're not there to help other people um, in that way. We're there to walk alongside other people, a lot like what Vanier said. Um, that's how you do life together. That's how you do community. That's how you build trust. Yeah, I love that word that he uses, meeting, right? Because it has this sort of, um, you, you meet on the same level, no matter what, right? There's no sort of imbalance when you talk about true meetings and walking alongside someone. Yeah, that's the biggest thing that I've learned if I'm really honest with myself is I probably did have that kind of social intellectual hierarchy built in my mind where other people need my help, um, which is not the tru truth at all. That's an assumption that I had of people when I met them, I think. Um, and a lot of it is maybe checking that assumption and realizing that we are all in the image of God and meeting people, hearing their story, getting curious about their story is how you see 
more of the image of God and learn more about him. So uh, you have a pretty unique situation in that you're the principal of this school, and I mean, no offense, Katie, but like it or not, you're faced with these types of, of situations every day, right? I mean, that's your job in some ways. What, um, do you have any advice or any word for those of us who maybe aren't confronted with that type of perceived imbalance every day? Um, what can we do to sort of discover that within ourselves as well? He does not ask light questions. <laughs> right to it. Um, yeah, I am, I am one of the lucky ones who gets to be in this community of difference every day um, where that, that's my job is to get to know other people, get to know their stories, try and see how other people are thinking. Um, that's what we can do in our communities, though, as well. Um, I really, I agree with Vanier that I think when Jesus talks about loving our enemy, he's asking us to try and get to know our enemy, see what their story is, because that's who we're doing community with, that's who he's built us to be in community with, that enemy um, is the image of God as well, and teaches us more about him. So some sort of intentionality about uh, just everyone, is that sort of what I hear you saying? And, and and working within a community setting to make sure that we have venues for that. I love that phrase you use, community of, of difference. Right? Yeah. I think it starts out as intentionality, but I think my hope is that it just eventually becomes who we are, trying to get to know the other person. And yeah. Cool. What about, um, what about taking that sort of from an individual level up to a community level? Uh, what would you say to a community like Oak Park? Um, just what I've said before in the, the how to do it. Um, do it together. Do it together, yeah. Um, churches are interesting spaces. Um, a lot of the times they collect like-minded people, um, which is how I grew up. I grew up in the church and I love it. I think that's what made me love community. Uh, but the community that Jesus shares with us is a community full of difference and diversity. Um, sometimes I wonder if places like the library are creating spaces where that happens more naturally. Um, yeah. That's just a shout out to your husband. That's all that is. Jordan works at the library. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, there, there are certainly a lot of social spaces where in the, you know, quote unquote, secular world, they're really wrestling with and, and thinking through um, issues of disability. What does it mean to be inclusive in this space? Issues of difference. Um, as a church, sometimes we fall behind in that, that kind of discussion. Yeah, I think that we can. Um, I do think it's encouraging that churches seem to be open to the conversation more about how that can look. Um, and it is a tricky thing when it's a gathering place for people. I think it's more about us going back out into the community and practicing these things. Um, I think that that's where it can happen. Cool. Thanks, Katie. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. I mean, that, in some ways, uh, the topic this morning is a little bit of an extension of what we wrestled with last fall and talking about the purpose of our church, uh, not only to meet and gather and be inspired or to be filled by the Holy Spirit together, but actually to go out and to expire, right? To breathe out the Holy Spirit into the neighborhood that we're in. And that in doing so, we're not called to sort of 
uh, be self-preservation for the church. That's not our job. God is in control of the church. Our job is to give it away. So in this setting, it's, uh, it's more a personal call in your own life. Well, we have another uh, special this morning in that it's Father's Day, and we are going to have Elijah and Amelia come and play during our offering and communion. Uh, so that's a wonderful little gift for Kenzie. Um, I'm going to pray, and then one of them, I'm not sure which one, is going to come up and, and play while the ushers take up our offering. Father, we give you thanks for all the things you've given us. For all the blessings that you've bestowed on us, everything we have is, is from you. And we belong to you, but we also know that we belong to each other. And so that in these gifts that we give this morning, there is a truth in that. That we give of ourselves so that we can build each other up. So that your church and your kingdom can reach out into the world and it can expire. Breathe out the Holy Spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.